Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Micah. The Old Testament book of Micah and Micah and chapter number 5. The, or chapter number 4 is where we're going to start. We're going to look at both chapter 4 and 5 as they blend together. We've been taking a survey of the book of Micah through our series and we took the last two chapters first and saw the great judgment that God had upon his people and found him guilty and that there was no character witnesses, no one that could speak up for the people. And when they were found clearly guilty, the sentence was made and then the judge did something amazing. The judge stepped down, took off his judgment robe and he paid the price for the guilty party on his own. And that's exactly what God did for us. That we were guilty with no reprieve, no explanation, no excuse that we could give that could get us out of us being guilty. And yet Jesus died on the cross for us to pay for our sins. And then we spoke a little bit on, on a Sunday night as we examined Micah chapter 1 through 3. And we saw the charges against the people. And we saw at the end that it was the preachers who were having a guilty part of this. That they were healing the hurt of my daughter slightly. Saying peace, peace when there was no peace. And that what was needed was a spirit-filled preacher to tell them the truth so that way they could turn from their wicked ways. And now we come to the middle of what we hit. We've hit the last two chapters. We hit the first three chapters. Now we come to the middle two chapters. And we want to see what the emphasis that God is placing inside of Micah chapter 4 and chapter number 5. And so if you don't mind, notice with me in the book of Micah chapter 4. And notice with me starting at verse 1. Micah chapter 4 and verse 1. Notice what the word of God says. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills and the people flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all the people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever." In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, 
and I will gather her that is driven out and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock and the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom, shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why dost thou cry out loud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For the pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon, and there shalt, and shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not neither the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their grain, or their gain unto the Lord, their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the Old Testament book of Micah? The Old Testament book of Micah in chapter number four. And notice the very end of verse number four. Micah chapter four and verse four. Notice the phrase, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And with the Lord's help, we would like to preach about this and how important it is for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And now as we tackle this passage here with so much prophecy and so many things to try to make straight, I'm asking that you would help us to do that. Give us discernment by your Holy Spirit to see this passage as you intended it, as it gives us a map of prophecy, a map of history, that we could see for ourselves what a great, mighty, and wonderful God that you are. I'm asking that you would help us to make this clear, teach the principles of prophecy that are taught here. But more importantly, we would see how important it is of your word and that we can trust it. Thank you again that we can trust your word. Fill me with your spirit even now for the purpose of you using your word to help your people. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now as we come to the middle part of the book of Micah, Micah chapter 4, and Micah chapter 5, these are two prophetic chapters. They are full of prophecy. Now, <clears throat> one of the greatest evidences, one of the greatest proofs that the Bible indeed is the Word of God is the basis of fulfilled prophecy. Now, remember that one-third of the Bible is prophecy, and most of that prophecy is fulfilled. 
so what we mean by that is that we can look back in history and see if these prophecies are made and that we can look in history and say, look, it was fulfilled here. It was fulfilled here. May I also remind you that when we speak about prophecy, some people have in mind that prophecy is some vague statement, some general statement that someone could make and it could be fulfilled by just depending on where you stand, different perspectives. But however, Bible prophecy is not like that at all. Bible, Bible prophecy is very specific and that can only be filled in certain conditions. And we're going to see that here in the book of Micah as we see a lot of prophecy. Now with this, as we're understanding that God's word is God's word, because of fulfilled prophecy, because of the importance of going through history and seeing this prophecy fulfilled, and it gives us assurance that God's word can be trusted. Another idea that we have to understand here is this element of how prophecy is seen. Now remember, as God is using human instrumentality, that as he uses human instruments, these human instruments can only write from their perspective. For example, in the book of Revelation, you have the apostle John who actually participates in the rapture. He's actually raptured out. And he's brought and he's given a view of heaven and a view of things on earth. And remember, here is a first century man who is looking at things still in our future. For example, the idea of cable networks. How in the world does a first century a person explore that everyone explain the fact that everyone in the world could watch an event happening in Jerusalem all at the same time and so we understand that there's a matter of perspective now Micah didn't get transported in the future but he has been given a glimpse of the future and the way that he is looking at the future is not like a nice road map it's not like a book that he just turns the page but how he is looking at the future here is as if he is sitting on a hill and he's looking at a series of hills and mountains. Now, as he's looking at the series of hills and the mountains, if you've ever been in the Rockies or maybe even the Appalachians and you've seen those beautiful mountains, what you would do is you would look at one and focus on one and the rest of them will kind of blur a little bit, but you can't see with things within the valley. And because of how the mountains are, you can't necessarily tell how far apart the mountain peaks are as well. You're just looking from peak to peak to peak. And this is what we see in the book of Micah here, is that he is taking a look and he's looking at prophecy. He's looking at future events and he's seeing different hilltops and he's looking at this hilltop and he looks at this one and he looks at this one. And so because of that, we're not seeing a timeline of prophecy. We're not seeing a clear roadmap of this happens and then this happens and this happens. He's getting a glimpse of this, which is in this era. And he looks at this and this is at this time. And he looks at this and it's his time. All he knows is that it's in his future. Now inside of Micah chapter 4 and chapter 5, as we have the perspective of being further in the timeline, there are some of these prophecy peaks that are in our past. They're now our history. But we have some of these that are still in our future and we can see a little bit more of the hilltops from where we're at. We can look back and see the valleys and we can look at the things past and we can look ahead and see some of the mountain parks. And so that's, uh, 
a way that we're trying to explain how prophecy is being portrayed here is that he is not getting the full scope. He's not seeing the whole mountain. He's not seeing the path to get to the mountain. He is just getting a glimpse of different periods in history, but he is tying them together for this one purpose, for the people at this time to understand that God's word will stand. And we can trust God's word that the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And so as we start off and we examine this passage, the first thing I'd like to do as we kind of discern these two chapters together is that we see the restoration depicted. The restoration depicted. As we start again in chapter 4 and verse number 1, what we see here is a millennial kingdom passage. Now, what's the millennial kingdom? The millennial kingdom is a future event in our future. We know that the next event on God's calendar is something called the rapture, the calling away, where all those people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior are going to be called away. And then after that, on the timeline of history, the next event is going to be called the tribulation. And according to prophecy, according to the Old Testament, that God is once again dealing with his people Israel to bring them back to himself. At the end of the tribulation is going to begin a period called the millennial kingdom. Why is it called the millennial kingdom? Because Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. And the purpose of the millennial kingdom is that it is the fulfillment of the prophecies, the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to the Hebrew people. Now this is going to be important because what is happening currently, present tense, is that Micah is writing approximately 722 BC. And it is at this time that the Assyrian Empire, the Nazis, Nazis of the ancient world, the world empire at this time, is surrounding the northern kingdom of Israel, specifically the capital of Samaria. And at this time, the Assyrians are a huge army juggernaut. No one has been able to stand against them. No one has been able to stop them. And kingdom after kingdom, city after city has fallen before their feet. In fact, later they go up to King Hezekiah as in the future of this event, they're going to come to Jerusalem after they destroy Samaria. They're going to knock off all the cities of Judea. Then they're going to come to Jerusalem and they're going to send an announcement that we have defeated every nation and every God, little g, God, that has come against us, what is your God going to do? Now that was the wrong thing to say because God proved himself that he was a true and living God. But you understand what they were saying? We went and we captured this city and they prayed to their God and their God could do nothing. And we went over here and their God could do nothing. And we went over there and their God could do nothing. And now we're here. And so they have been a juggernaut that has been running and destroying everything. So if you can imagine being in Jerusalem and being one of the regular folks, not knowing everything that's going on, but hearing the rumors of the Assyrians that have now come and swept across the world. And now they have destroyed the sister nation of Israel right now present tense with every intention that you are the next target. 
could you imagine how frightened the people would be? To know that they're next on the hit list and that you're just a small nation compared to a world empire that is now ruled for 700 years. What can you do to stand? What can you do against that? Well, the answer is to trust God at his word. The words that come out of his mouth. And so as Micah is now delivering a message of hope, he's giving them a thing in the future, telling them, guess what? God's not done with you yet. Let me tell you a little bit about your future. What this is doing is that it is giving the people hope because God said he's going to keep his word. Remember, as Jesus told his disciples, boys, we're going to the other side. It doesn't matter what storms come. What winds may blow, you're going to the other side. And so when God is giving this prophecy and he's giving to Micah and telling them, this is what's going to happen in the future. This is meant to encourage them that God is not done with them yet. There's still something planned for them. And he begins at the fulfillment of the prophecies given to the Hebrew people of the millennial kingdom. So here we see the restoration, uh, the restoration when God restores Israel, when he brings them back. Let's see as God depicts this in verse number 1. Micah chapter 4 and verse 1. But in the last days, once again this is dealing with prophecy. It's now dealing with the millennial kingdom. In the last days, in the end of all of this prophecy, in the last days it shall come to pass. That the mountain of the house of the Lord, this is Jerusalem, shall be established on the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow to it. Now remember we understand that in the future prophecy, Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the world. It is going to be the most important city of all of the millennial kingdom. Could you imagine being in Jerusalem in their day and knowing that this juggernaut's going to come and you're afraid it's going to destroy it? And God says, listen, I still have plans for this town. I still have plans for this little city. I've got plans and one day it's going to be the capital of the world. Verse number two, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and the house of God of the God of Jacob, and he, this God, will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, imagine this. The world is falling apart in their eyes. They're being swallowed by the Assyrians, and God says, guess what? One day, all the nations of the world are going to come to Jerusalem. And they're going to receive their orders, their law, the directives from God from Jerusalem. That one day the world will come to you, not to conquer you, but to learn about who God is. Notice as it goes on in verse 3. And he, this is God, shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they, these nations, shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken this. At this time the Assyrian threat has been a big threat for a while. In the previous kings you've had... These other kings who have had to deal with 
the Assyrian Empire. In fact, Hezekiah's great, great um, grandfather, or great grandfather, had led a coalition to stand against the Assyrian Empire. And so this has been going on for generations now, this Assyrian threat. They've been dealing with it for four kings, and now it's Hezekiah's turn. And thank the Lord that Hezekiah was a godly man. And he was trying to teach the people to pray uh, and to look to God, to answer to God. And Micah is down dealing with the people level, the, the common people level. Working with them and giving them this reminder here. That in the millennial kingdom, you don't have to worry about war anymore. Can you imagine what a relief that would be to the Hebrew people who have been dealing with the Assyrian threat for four different kings now? What it would be like to have that constant pressure that's always on them. It's almost like going to Jerusalem now and saying, guess what? You are going to know peace like no other time. You'll never have to be worried about another bomb, another missile, another threat. Could you imagine the threat for Israel today has been so real. They couldn't even imagine a time of such peace. This is what God is telling them, that you're going to have such peace that weapons of war, you're not going to need them. People are going to remake the weapons of war. They're going to take their swords and they're going to turn them into farm implements. And people are going to farm their own land. And they're going to be content. They're not going to take over anything else. It's going to be a time of great peace. By the way, because this is what God said was going to happen, we could trust God at his word. Imagine what a relief that message of hope was to these people under the Assyrian threat now. That there's going to be a time of no war. Verse number five. For all the people will walk, everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, this is giving a reference here that people are not going to have religious wars or fight against war. We're going to walk after our God and no one's going to give us any trouble about it. Imagine what a relief that would be to the Hebrew people to hear. That they could worship their God and no one's going to say anything about it. Notice as it goes on verse 6. In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halteth a remnant, and her that was cast afar off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth forever. Now, this is given a prophetic event that is still coming true uh, in that time. That when the Assyrian Empire came, they would kidnap people and they would displace them thousands of miles throughout the whole Assyrian Empire. Then later on, when the Babylonian Empire came, they did the same thing. And very few, relatively few people ever returned back to Israel. In fact, today, there are more Jewish people living in New York State and in New York City than all of Israel. They're still scattered all over the place. Very few have ever come back. But God is saying, I've kept track of where they're all at. And the people that have never returned, I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to make a strong nation out of them. And I haven't forgotten, I've got plans. And I'm going to rule every one of them from Jerusalem. Notice as it goes on. And in verse number seven, or verse number eight. And thou, O tower of the flock, 
the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion, and the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why dost thou cry out loud? Is no, no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For the pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. As we now switch over, we can see that uh, the restoration depicted, but now it switches over, starting here in verse 9, to the restoration delayed. What we mean by this is that, hey, that sounds great, but we're a distance away from it. Before that happens, there are other things that are going to pop up. And so notice as this goes on, we start to see some of these hilltops. Now for a while we've been just looking at one huge mountain in the background, been looking at the millennial kingdom. But now in the next the rest of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we're going to rapid fire look at a couple different hilltops all at once and we're going to see different things happening. Notice as we go on and we see this restoration delayed, some other events that are going to occur uh, in verse number 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now thou shalt go forth out of the city and thou shalt dwell in the field and thou shalt go even to Babylon. Now, for those of us living here and maybe not familiar with history, that word Babylon's not a big deal to us. But in the light of Micah and where he's at, this is significant. Because at this time, the Assyrian Empire is the big military juggernaut. It is the world empire. And if you were to go up to a regular person worldwide and say, hey, one day Babylon's going to rule the world, you would get laughed at. Because Babylon is a city within the Assyrian Empire. It's considered a holy city, but not a military city. It's considered a cultural city, but not a military city. And it's in the middle of Assyria. And the Assyrian Empire is Babylon's part of it. But here, 100 to 150 years before Babylon becomes a world empire, it's listed here. And it's listed that, hey, don't worry about Assyria taking over Jerusalem. It's going to be Babylon. What? And so what he sees is a hilltop that in our timeline, we understand, is about 100 to 150 years from where Micah is standing now. You know, again, he's not understanding how far away things are. We can look at history. But he's looking at something that's still afar out from him. It's now our history but this is a big deal to name Babylon by name. You know, some people who don't like the Bible, they would like to try to explain, well, you know, someone wrote that after the fact. Micah is someone who knew what was going to happen and then he wrote Babylon. Well, actually, Micah dates himself of what kings he ruled under or prophesied under and Hezekiah was one of them. And this is a very interesting and specific event what happens with Hezekiah because we could date it 722 BC is when the Assyrian Empire destroys the northern kingdom and then the Assyrians come to Jerusalem and it is well marked in Assyrian history as well as Hebrew history you can look through Assyrian history and see the same event and so when Micah is writing here he's seeing a prophetic event and he's writing about it years before it comes to pass, with a specific name, Babylon. Why are we saying this? Because one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is true is the proof, the evidence of fulfilled prophecy.
And what we're learning here is that if God can fulfill prophecy and we can look at it in history, we could trust his word in everything else because God has spoken it. We could trust God's word. Notice as it goes on, he now switches gears from <coughs> verse uh, 9 and 10 where he talks about Babylon. Now we get another glimpse, verse number 11. Now, also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not that the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as sheaves under the floor. Now, verse 11 Throughout history, we've always seen the people who have been against the Hebrew people. You go over time and time again that the Hebrew people have always been the whipping boys of the world. That, for example, when the plague, Black Plague hit and the 1200s, that one third of Europe was killed because of the plague. And guess who they blamed? They blamed the Hebrew people, Jewish people. In fact, they tried to kill as many Jewish people as they could, hoping that it would stop God's plague that came because of these, we are allowing the Jewish people to live within us. You go and over and over and over throughout history, great persecution upon the Jewish people. Most people only know of the Holocaust, and even that's being denied. But you understand the Holocaust was not unique. It was just the newest event of what happened. And it's going to continue to happen in the future. So much that one day, all of the nations of the world are going to say, here's our chance. And they're going to gather together. And they're going to destroy Jerusalem. Or that's what their mindset is. Verse number 12. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord. Neither understand they his counsel. For he, the Lord, shall gather them as sheaves on the floor. So later on, in the future events, when all of the enemies are gathering against Israel, they think they're gathering to show God and destroy his people. God says, no, I'm just making it easy on me so I can destroy you all at once, just having you at the same place. God says, I don't have to track you down if you're all at the same place. That's still a future event for us. But God says, I know what I'm doing. I'm bringing these stuff to pass. Notice as we go on, we see another thing. Verse number 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make the horns of iron. Go to uh, chapter 5, verse 1, as we now see another uh, thing. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops, he that layeth siege against us, and they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon his cheek. Now what we see is another future event. This is speaking about when King Zedekiah decides that he is going to take the penknife and cut up the word of God. And God uses the same language dealing with King Zedekiah when he destroys it. So we could see that we're looking at an event and then it goes afar off. And now it comes over an event that happens about 200 years from now with King Zedekiah. And then we go to verse number two. And now we now go to about 700 years in the future. Notice in verse number two. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee he come forth unto thee, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. What we see here is now we see 700 years in the future from where Micah stands. 
that it goes and says, let me tell you where Jesus is going to be born. The one who's going to rule it all, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And by the way, some people, because we're taught Bethlehem, most people think, well, Bethlehem must be a pretty good-sized city. It is not. Even today, it's little tiny. And God says, that little village out there, I'm letting you know 700 years before it happens, that's where the Messiah is going to be born. That's where the one who rules the world is going to come from. Can you imagine these events? Now he goes and we see a different view. Notice in chapter four, uh, 5 and verse 4. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, and now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Now we go again thousands of years from where Micah stands, and we now start to see once again a millennial kingdom view that Jesus is going to stand and he's going to abide. When it says he shall stand, it's talking about the one who is born in Bethlehem, the one that came from Bethlehem, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty in the name of God, the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he, that's Jesus, be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man, this Jesus, shall be the peace. When the Assyrian, now it's using the Assyrian, it's using it as a reference in Micah's day when it seemed like the whole world was coming against him. So it's using this term as a way to relate that all the world is going to come against him. But that's not going to matter, it's King Jesus. When the Assyrian shall come in our land and when he shall tread in our palaces, then we shall raise up against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And we could see more of this. Uh, notice as it goes on and it talks more. Verse number six. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. And thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and he treadeth upon his borders. And now we've started off by talking about the restoration depicted. But then we see the restoration delayed and we see a couple snapshots of different things before the millennial kingdom hits. But now we go back and we can see this, the restoration described. Now we can see more of a description going back to the millennial kingdom and we can see different things that God is doing. Notice in verse number seven. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the field, as a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces that none can be delivered. <clears throat> thine hand shall be lifted upon thine adversaries and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Now in verses 7 and 8, it's talking about how the people of Israel, the Jewish people, will have a high place in the millennial kingdom. But then it also gives a description that because they have such a high place, such an elevated role, because Jesus is protecting them and he's the ruler, that the rest of the nations are going to do what they can not to say anything bad against the Hebrew people, not to do anything because they don't want to accidentally uh, say something offensive to the Hebrew people because the punishment will come from God really quick. Imagine a time for the Hebrew people 
when people will be scared to say anything wrong against them. Imagine such a time that they're going to be careful about what they say. They're not going to say any slur or Jewish jokes. They're not going to make fun of them. They're going to be on their best behavior because these are God's people. We don't want to make God mad. We know where he's at. As it goes on, he now turns to the Hebrew people. And now it gets to the crux. Verse number 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee. And I will destroy thy chariots. And I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all of thy strongholds. And I will cut off witchcrafts out of thy hand. And thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off. And thy standing images out of the midst of thee. And thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee. So I will destroy thy cities. Now in verses 10 through 14, it speaks about all the things that God is going to get rid of. He's going to get rid of these. He's going to get rid of these. And you say, what's, what's the meaning of this? Well, the purpose of this is that God is going to get rid of Every item that the Hebrew people can possibly put their trust in. So they have no other choice but to trust in God himself. God wants the people to trust in him. And that's what brings us to where we're at. How does this apply to us? How does this work for us? Well, these prophecies were given for the Israelites to give them hope and encouragement. But what was going to be the thing that got them through the hard times is when they looked at God and looked at God alone. You understand, what do you do when you go through hard times? Do you run to Facebook? Do you run to TV and maybe get a distraction? Do you try to just ignore it? Do you just try to put yourself into work and hopefully that it will come to pass? What is it that you do when you come through trouble? Well, the proper response for God's people is to go to his word. What this whole passage is talking about is that the people are surrounded by trouble. They're surrounded by enemies. They're surrounded by something they cannot fix themselves. And now they can't trust in a neighbor to help them. They can't trust in their leadership. They can't trust in anything. I guess we'll have to trust in God. And whereas God's usually the last thing we trust in, he should be the first thing we trust in. Why? Because God will keep his word. For the Lord hath spoken it. For God's people, we should get our encouragement from God's word because his word is true. We should be able to go to him for his promises. It should be the first thing we run into. This is why Bible memorization is so important. So we have something to go to when we're in the midst of things and we can't grab a Bible. This is why Bible meditation is so important. That we get used to thinking about biblical things when trouble hits. What is it that you are putting your trust in? Let's say that you have a bad day. I mean, it's been bad. People cut you off of traffic. Work has been awful. This has happened. What do you turn to? It should be the word of God. You should be able to get your comfort and your hope from God's word. You understand, we as people, just like the Hebrew people, 
have a tendency to find something else to trust in. We have a tendency to find something else, maybe just to distract us so we don't have to deal with it. But as God's people, if we truly believe that God's word is true, we should get our hope and comfort from the scriptures. This should be our hope. And God, as he deals with his people, will try to work with them and he will show that these other things will fail. Again, how many times have we had one of those days and we turn to social media and find that it leaves us more empty and frustrated than what we started with. Maybe it's we trust in a spouse or a family member and maybe they'll comfort us and there's no comfort to be found from them. Maybe it's the idea that I could just put it away and you try to go to sleep and ignore it, but it just haunts you. Where do you go? Again, for God's people, we should get the hope and comfort from God's scriptures because his word is true. For the Lord God hath spoken it. We should trust God's word. And again, it's something we have to develop the habit of doing because we're not in the habit of doing it. We're in the habit of doing something else. And they fail. They may help for a tiny bit, but they crumble. They cannot hold the pressure. It's the scriptures we need to run to. What is the most important thing you could do on a daily basis as a Christian? To run to the scriptures. You say, how does that help? Because the scriptures will naturally lead to prayer. As you meditate on God's scriptures, you read God's word, you realize that he's the one that you have, and then you start praying the words of scripture. Lord, you promised so much to the Hebrew people that you gave them hope. I'm claiming the same thing. You've given me hope. I'm going to your scriptures. Lord, you're still good. I can trust you. As we look through the book of Micah, we can see that there's a trustworthy God who's plenteous of mercy. That clearly in the book of Micah, we can see it's a book of judgment. The people stood guilty. But God was long-suffering and showed them mercy. What is it that you run to? You understand the greatest thing you could do when you go through trouble, when you go through heartaches, when you go through heartbreak, when you go to the place where you just don't know what to do, you should be learning to run to the scriptures. For the Lord God hath spoken it. Can you trust his word? We know that he's trustworthy and his word has proven true over and over and over. The greatest evidence that the Bible indeed is the word of God is the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. All that is meant to do is make, bring you to the place where you purposely in your mind say, I can trust God's word. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time 
to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.